Well, I am delighted to say that uh, joining me on the Godcast today is a politician who perhaps needs little introduction. Uh, John McDonnell is with me today. John is a British politician who served as uh, Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer from 2015 to 2020. And he's a member of the Labour Party and has been a member of Parliament for donkey's years is perhaps the best way to describe it, John. Um, John, it's great to welcome you on the Godcast. How are you? Very good. I'm very good. I'm busy, hectic, same as you really, dealing with all the problems of COVID and goodness knows what else. But actually, um, what's wonderful, I, I just, I think one of the things we've learned about each other over the last year or so, especially, is just, just how much we need each other, but actually how much we care for each other as well. And it's just, you come out of these things, there's been real tragedies in my community, like everywhere else. But the thing about it, actually, I'm really optimistic because it's brought out the best in people as well, which has been wonderful. So no, I'm at the moment, I'm, in, I'm really optimistic about where we're going. It's tough work at the moment for all of us, but no, it's great. I mean, yeah. I'm enjoying getting back in touch with people as well, just be able to physically see them as well. It's great. It's, it's wonderful. Mind you, whether they want to physically see me, I don't know. But <laughs> Well, who knows, eh? <laughs> John, where in the world are you? In Westminster today, or where are you? Oh no, I'm working from home. I'm, I'm, I'm in my constituency, Hayes and Harlington. That's where I've lived for the last forty odd years. Um, Hayes and Harlington. It's Heathrow Airport is at the in the constituency. So it's it's the town above, the town above Heathrow. Um, multicultural. Um, working class community. I always used to say it's a bit like a northern town dropped on the edge of London. There's yes. a real sense of community here. It's I do every now and again I do a, a, a conference on a local government hist a local history conference, and one year I did it as the history of Hayes as a migrant community, and basically it tells the story of everyone comes here to work. You know, they that that's the reality of it, mm. and so there's a story of the last century and a bit of different waves of migrants coming. Um, the Irish, my lot, basically came. Um, big Irish community. Interesting enough, because we were on the railway line to Wales as well, there's quite a bit of a Welsh community that people came up by the railway, working on the railways as well, actually. We had a railway estate for railway workers. And then after that, it was, um, there was a sizable um, Afro-Caribbean community, but then a huge Asian community. And then over the last 40 years, quite a number of different African groups, Somali community, large number of Somali women came here in the late 80s and 90s with the children from the, the war, basically. And um, interestingly enough, they formed a very matriarchal society. So when the men started arriving, <laughs> the women said, hang on a minute, we're in charge here. And then after that, we've got a Kurdish community. So. Different people have come here looking for work, but often looking for refuge as well. Mm. And, you know, a huge Sikh community, Punjabi Sikh community. And we rub, again, we rub along together pretty well. It's been, mm. you know, it's been yeah. a tough at times um, where people have tried to divide us. But actually, it's quite a united community, which is wonderful. That's nice. And all the different religious and community groups come together pretty well. Whenever there's a crisis in this community, like we've had over COVID, there's, there's no hesitation in people coming together. Whenever I put out an appeal, it's amazing the sort of solidarity that you see. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's really. lovely to see. Yeah. Mm. 
but you're a, you're a Liverpool lad by birth. But I was, I was reading you ended up in Great Yarmouth. What's your what's your recollections of Great Yarmouth, <laughs> the great the great British tourism seaside oh, resort? No. What happened was is that um, my my dad is from Liverpool, and when he um, Second World War, he was in the army as a sergeant in the army. He was stationed in in Norfolk, East Anglia, before he went to uh, uh, Germany. Um, and he met my mum in East Anglia. So when he came back from the war, um, I didn't know they'd done this deal. My mum said, I'm happy to go back to Liverpool, but eventually I want to go back to Norfolk. So after about 10 years in Liverpool, my brother and I were born. And then we went to uh, Great Yarmouth from where my mum came from. Uh, I thought we were going on Aldi. I kept on saying, when are we going back to Liverpool? You know, I've I've, that's why I feel so strong as scouts already. Anyway, in North, we landed up in um, Great Yarmouth, where my mum came from, and on town just outside Galston. We wound up in um, Council Prefab um, in Galston, and which my mum my mum and dad swore by the Council Prefab. They thought it was the best accommodation we've ever been in. It was up until then. Then we had we were on a, a big council estate in Galston just outside, and it was a mixture of being at the seaside, but also a bit in the country as well. So I, I, I liked it, um, but Great Yarmouth now, it's, it's quite, uh, going back there, I go back to the Norfolk Broads, I sail on the Broads. Going back there now, it's had some hard knocks as well. Coastal towns have had some real knocks over the years. You know, they've lost, Great Yarmouth lost the fishing, the tourism, they made up for it a bit, but not enough. They got a bit of work from North Sea Oil, that's now gone. So they've had a rough time there. So it's quite high levels of deprivation in our coastal towns. Yeah. And that's great, John. And one thing that uh, struck me, and I, I'm, I'm taking this information from Wikipedia, so it could be entirely fabricated, of course, but when you were a young guy, you you actually contemplated um, joining the, the Roman Catholic priesthood. Is that correct? Yes, yeah. It was your classic Irish family, really. I... Um, Interesting. I, we were my mum and dad. Um, my dad born a you know Catholic into an Irish Catholic family in Liverpool. My mum was a convert. Um, it's the usual thing then. You know, when you married a when you married a Catholic, you'd have to agree to bring up the children as Catholics, that sort of thing. And she became a Catholic. So we would go to mass and Benedict. So I'd serve on the altar, and I was very uh, very committed Catholic, involved in the church a lot. And then at the age of about um, 11, 12, um, they ask, you know, have you considered a vocation? And at that stage, I thought, yeah, I might have. So I went off to, I was, went off to the, be taught by the De La Salle brothers in a boarding school to prepare me for a minor seminary. And I was there from the age of 12 until 16. So, yeah, no, I was serious. I wanted to be a Catholic priest. I thought about it. I was very serious about it. Um, but then eventually I discovered I hadn't got a vote. I thought I hadn't got a vocation and, and, and didn't. But, yeah, no, I, 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 was, I was serious as a young man about becoming a Catholic priest, definitely. Um, I think the Catholic Church had most probably avoided quite a disaster, really, don't you? <laughs> I was very, i tell you what inspired me about at that time. I don't know if you can recall. It was Pope John Twenty-Third. He was quite a radical Pope mm. and he was a reforming Pope. And at that point in time as well, you had this big movement of um, worker priests, 
particularly in Latin America, where they were about changing the world, tackling mm. poverty and inequality. Mm. And it was a it was a very politicized Catholicism at the time, too, which I found as a young man, a youngster, very attractive at the time. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So did that give you the roots for the political interest? Did you when you decided it wasn't going to be the, the priesthood? A bit, a bit. In my family, my dad was always active in the trade union movement. He was a my dad was a Liverpool docker in Liverpool and so active in the trade unions there. My mum was a cleaner. Uh, and then when we moved to Great Yarmouth, my dad became a bus driver and he was always branch secretary of the Transport and General Workers Union branch. Very active in that. And my mum worked behind the biscuit counter in British Home Store. So we lived off um, we lived off biscuits for quite a while. It was. And anyway, the, but no, the, so there was always politics spoken in the house, mm. uh, trade union politics, lay party politics. So there was always there was always a political perspective, but also actually the Catholicism did as well. It was a form of political Catholicism in the sense of um, a mission to change the world, but to do that through organisation and that sense of solidarity. So all of those things came together that naturally got me interested in politics. Yeah. And, and just kind of wrapping up that bit about faith, is that something that stayed with you or have you just parked it? Are you, would you now say you're a, a, an agnostic, an atheist? What would you, what would, where's your position now, John? I think, to be honest, I think I'm an atheist. I, I can't, when you say you're an agnostic, it sounds as though you keep the insurance policy there. But I think, I'm, I think I've come to the conclusion, I don't believe in a, a, there is a deity, but I respect, uh, I respect, I respect religions. I deal with so many different religions in my constituency now. It's amazing how many are based upon the same core values and how that motivates people. And I respect that completely, really. Mm. And so on, on that basis, although I don't, I don't have faith myself, I respect those people that do have faith. And in some ways, um, in some ways I try in many ways to, in, Part of my role is about bringing people together and having that shared understanding. So I, I was one of the local Catholic priests is a young lad whose dad I used to know in the constituency years ago. I was saying to him at one point, I spend more time in the churches and good warriors than mosques than all of you lot put together. <laughs> but because it's, that's the nature of our society, people yeah. do still orient themselves around the local yeah. religious group you know whether it's in the mosque or whether it's in the good while for the Sikhs or in uh, for the Christians in their churches and I again I, what I try to do is understand the world on the basis of how people interpret it through their religion as well and I think that's quite important yeah you know uh, this next question I miss religion can I just say though I do miss religion though yeah I do I, I miss I'm an old-fashioned Catholic. I miss the old incense and the thurible going and the Latin, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> what you're saying is just what I'm thinking is because you said I'm an old-fashioned Roman Catholic. I wonder, even though you've declared yourself as this atheist, that numerous Roman Catholics that I've spoken to have all had the same thread, which is once a Roman Catholic, always a Roman Catholic. <laughs> so, so there is something, I think there is a of thread course. running through you, John. No, uh, no, I, I, never, I never deny my roots because I think my values are based upon that history. Yeah. But and I think that's given me something so important. I may not believe in a deity, but I believe in what I what was taught was so fundamental to us. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole concept of love and charity and that being, I no, I'd never, I, I never deny my roots. In fact, I'm quite proud of them. Mm -hmm. 
the issue about whether there's a deity there is, is not, for me, is neither here nor there. The issue is, what do you believe in? And what, what do you believe is that the core of humanity? Mm. And I got that from my religion, certainly. And I got that from the discussions, the political discussions around my socialism as well. All of us are in that, in that mixture. But I do miss the old ceremony, though. I really do. I have to say that. Yeah. It's so interesting what you're saying. I'm going away from my notes here, but um, because it, I think, you know, I often say to people, even if you don't uh, believe in a deity, then religion is a mm. most wonderful subject to study because it's, you know, that it's so open-ended and it and and there are so many wonder, you know, and all its bad stuff in the things that have gone wrong for the church. There's some really great yeah. teachings in there, aren't there? But it's also, yeah, and I, that's why I never deny the heritage of it. Um, it, it. It's built into us. You know, that for me in the Catholic Church, it was the learning of the catechism. You learn the catechism by rote. But then actually, as you mature, then you realise that's the basis of a common understanding of shared values mm. about how best to live your life. Mm. And that's why, you know, when I go to the mosque, it's quite interesting. And the... The way in which um, those values are taught in a different style, but actually they're the same core values. Yeah. In, in, the, in the Sikh religion, in the Gurdwaras, I have a large Punjabi population. Um, and again, they teach that, you know, there are many doors coming into this, into this Gurdwara. And it doesn't matter which way you come in. In other words, it doesn't matter how you get here, as long as you get here to the values that we're teaching. And I abide by that, really. That's yeah. why I never, I, I stand up for the rights of people to practice their religion. It's absolutely fundamental because it's core that we protect one another on this basic, pro, you know, democratic processes that have got to be to uphold people's right to believe yeah. what they want to believe. Yeah. Th thank you, John, for that. Um, just so we've talked about your own religious heritage, what about your political heritage? Can you recall... Uh, the kind of the first thing that kind of really started to grind your gears that obviously you've talked about your family being uh, trade unionists, but what was, what was the thing that really kind of stirred your pot and made you think I, I need to start engaging on a political front? I, because I was always interested, um, even at a very young age, you know, when I'm talking as an early teenager, really, I took an interest in reading the papers and I read an awful lot. I read an awful lot. Um, and I, can, I go, this is how old I am. I'm part of the archaeology, really. I can remember Harold Wilson as a prime minister, incredibly underrated as a prime minister, the way he held things together, kept us out of the Vietnam War, um, ensured that actually he would maintain that dynamic of the Atlee government of investing in our public services, particularly in education. And I actually found that all quite inspirational. I know people look back on Wilson now as just a sort of, political fixer but actually yeah he was a political fixer because he had to be to get coalitions together to enable him to implement the policies that we had that we needed then so that early stages of um, inspiration came from that Wilson period when there were some quite giants within the Labour Party then who you know who were able to in many ways articulate many of the concerns that I had about this our society and how we go forward and then after that, obviously, I joined the party, got active in, in involved in, in organisation and campaigning, both as a trade unionist, as a Labour Party member. And one of my close friends was Tony Benn, who was, again, inspirational figure in articulating what we meant by socialism in terms of achieving 
equality through the democratic process and how you bring people to together to in solidarity to enable you to achieve that sort of progress so that was the that was the stages i was very much um involved in a lot of sort of community activism if you like in in you know in i moved down south again to study so i was involved in things like set, campaigning for a local law center setting up local tenants groups campaigning i was even back at that stage campaigning on the environment as well so all of that was very much rooted in in um, yeah local community campaigns and which other political heavyweights were were you influenced by john of your time i well, mean i go back to kind of the i remember the michael foots and the dennis healy's and when when politics was um, very different i think but but who were the people uh, for you i think throughout all of that i in terms of reading i read extensively the the whole history of the labor party right the way back or well, the history of progressive movements so right the way back robert owen and cooperation um then you you move into that whole period of chartism and the development of trade unionism and if you look at some of the towering figures then interesting enough also i was interested in the development of how culture influences our politics so william morris ruskin those people and then of course you can't and this i get slated for this all the time you can't understand the, the the politics of our country or even the globe really unless you have an understanding of marx as well i can't think of anyone better so and analyzing how capitalism operates and its implications for society overall and then onto that you move into that period of the of the 20th century within our society itself and there's a there's a whole range of people who i've been inspired by you know george lansbury and his work in his community in east london the developments of the the developments of the politics of the atley government if you look at the atley government itself and what it did apart from clem atley himself you know a quiet a quiet but absolutely decisive leader alongside him of course nye bevan and his ways articulating not just the ideas of socialism but implementing it by the foundation of the nhs i've just been reading the um uh, the biography of Hugh Dalton, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer for the Labour government after the Second World War. Again, someone not really particularly well known, but who brilliantly administered the finances of a government to deliver us out of the depths of the problems of the Second World War, post-Second World War period, to try to seek a, achieve it, full employment setting up our welfare state system in terms of social security lift, lifting people out of poverty all of that reading of those heroes really i think in many respects laid laid the foundations then for what happened into the 60s 70s and 80s i had a lot of time for michael foot um but found that and then I, I had some dealings with him as a young man with regard to our own constituency on speaking engagements and and things like that um, but again i i felt his political analysis was fine but actually his implementation of some of those ideas was lacking and that's one of the lessons i thought we should learn for the future so that when you develop your ideas you've got to also have the practical policy program to be able to implement them as well so all of those so can i ask if you afforded any time to read in 
people on the opposite view to yourself and and um, you're gonna you're gonna uh, I don't mean to offend you when I ask you to pay compliments to the opposition but but also who were the you know the people on the right of politics and the conservative party that were that you that you maybe didn't agree with but respect respect enormously I'm sure there must be a few people along the way I read I've, I, I read extensively and throughout that period as well um, looked at the ideas that they were developing purely and simply because I wanted to know what the opposition were thinking and how you would have to counter those arguments um, I th having respect I don't disrespect but I don't necessarily respect either um, I if you look at my period from the 1980s onwards with the rise of Mrs Thatcher and Thatcherism and behind her you had people like Nicholas Ridley and others who were extremely right wing. See I throughout the 80s um, I believe our society suffered greatly and a whole generation after that suffered greatly. And therefore, I've read what the right were writing and their views to understand where they were coming from. But I felt they were profoundly wrong. So the development of neoliberalism or neoliberal economic policy largely under from Thatcher onwards, I found not just profoundly wrong, but actually profoundly brutal in terms of the way it affected our society. So in that in that regard i don't have that respect i don't disrespect them and i don't take politics on a personal basis at all it's about policies not personalities um but i i have within me i have to say and i need to be completely honest with this i have within me quite an anger about what went on over the last 40 years as a result of the policies that they advocated and the human suffering that they brought about which I find actually unforgivable. That's why I'm motivated in the best way I possibly can to ensure that there is an alternative to what what we've been through. And just, I look back on it as the, you know the levels of, of to pursue an economic experiment with monetarism that when it then became neoliberalism, which affected so many people's lives with high levels of unemployment cutting back of our public services, the undermining of our welfare state and the social consequences that had, I have to say, I've found it, I have found it unforgivable and I've had to be honest with people about that. Mm. And if we just move that on a little bit. So when, when uh, Tony Blair got into power, I suppose I was a bit younger then and, and probably a bit more naive. I just thought you were all one big happy family. <laughs> probably the best. <laughs> Probably the best way to describe it, and uh, one of the one of the guests on the Godcast was Alistair Campbell, and mm -hmm. and it was very clear that that there is a a gulf within the Labour Party. But but, but when you were, um, I suppose when Labour when Tony Blair was in power, was that was that a comfortable place for you, John, or were you were you then become challenged by the leadership as it was? What happened was is that in uh, I was a Labour candidate in ninety two. Um, and I lost, I, it was a Conservative seat, Hayes then, and I failed to win by 54 votes. Um, and then we had a new leader, John Smith, who I, it was sort of centre-right within the party, he wasn't on the left, 
but I had an awful lot of time and admiration for him because he was he was a socialist, he was absolutely honest and someone everyone respected and he brought the party together again. John Smith, um, I saw him shortly before he died. He died and then we were a bit bereft and we had a leadership election. Everyone expected Gordon Brown to take over, but then the deal was done and Tony Blair won. Tony Blair came in in 97, I was elected on 97, and we were all had extremely high hopes. And there's no doubt about it um, that under Blair and Brown, there was significant achievements in terms of investment in our public services, in terms of tackling child poverty. I, I don't think anyone's really fully complimented Gordon Brown enough for what he did on lifting children out of poverty. Um, some great policy areas like Sure Start Centres, a li uh, living a minimum wage introduced, those things I supported. But to be honest, from 97 onwards, I was on a number of issues. I was almost in permanent opposition to the, the Labour Party leadership. So things like I was opposed to privatisation, I was opposed to um, private finance initiatives and things like that, that inserted the private sector into our public services. I wanted a much more fundamental, um, I suppose, redistributive taxation policy, which redistributes wealth greater, in a greater proportion within our society. And I wanted more power to be passed over to working people as well, particularly at work through trade union rights. And then, of course, when it came to issues like tuition fees, I opposed the government. I opposed the Labour government then. I thought... I believe education is a gift from one generation to another, not a commodity to be bought and sold. So I oppose that. And I oppose the Iraq war fundamentally. I campaigned hard against the Iraq war. And I think it was a really appalling mistake. So I, I look back on those periods um, of thinking there's some great things that were done, but actually it was tarnished by some fundamental errors. Each year, I, I'm... I chaired the Socialist Campaign Group, which is the left group of MPs within Parliament, and I'd concentrate on economics. And each year I'd prepare an alternative budget to Gordon Brown's budget, which was more progressive, I felt. To give Gordon Brown his due, when I became Shadow Chancellor, we did a meeting together and I was introduced as the Shadow Chancellor and Gordon Brown said he's always been the Shadow Chancellor. <laughs> It's quite, it's really kind of him and witty, but it's true. So yeah, it's it was it was uncomfortable in the sense of you know sometimes you had to you had to vote on the against your own side. But I've always said on votes in Parliament and things like that, vote according to your principles, vote according to what you think is best for your constituency and your country, and that's the in that way we get better decisions. I think you know. Mm -hmm. Johnny, in, in Burnley, uh, during that period, all our schools were demolished and rebuilt. And at the time, it felt wonderful. But the, there seems to be a huge hangover from that now. Um, I suppose I'm not sure where I'm going with this. But sp and, and then the Tories came in and said, well, there's no money, there's no money left. Do, do you think that that Labour government was... Um, a bit too generous with the purse strings. I mean, because we've got we've got empty schools now in Burnley, these beautiful buildings that are now empty and idle. I just can't understand it. There's a number of things where you decide when you go into government what are the fundamental principles upon which you wish to govern and which you wish to 
developed society. And one of the fundamental principles of every Labour government is to have a fairer, more equal society. Socialism is about the achievement of equality through democracy. So every Labour government has at its heart trying to create this fairer, more equal society, but also more democratic. And part of that drive towards democracy is making sure people have the best education possible. So during that Labour period uh, under Blair and Brown, the investment in our public services shot up enormously and it was needed because we'd gone through uh, nearly two decades of Thatcherism, um, which had been cutting back on our welfare state and undermining our public services. So the NHS was in crisis in 1997 when Labour took over, so it needed investment. The same with education. I have to say in education in my constituency, Hazen Harlington, we still had outside toilets and things like that in some of our schools, and they were crumbling buildings. There was a crumbling schools policy that we were countering. So all of that investment was essential. Sometimes you get that, sometimes you get the individual policy decisions wrong, simple as that. Sometimes there's miscalculations on school populations for the future, that's inevitable. Where I think the biggest mistake was made was the introduction of the private finance initiative, where actually it's left us with a huge carryover of construction that took place, sometimes not the best, but often it was good, but too expensive. And it was too expensive because contractors and some companies, finance companies, were making vast profits. And I think the government and therefore the taxpayer was being ripped off. I can remember the first meeting where Alan Milburn, who was the chief secretary for the incoming Labour government <clears throat> in the Treasury, came to convince us that PFI was a wonderful way of uh, investing within our public services whilst keeping the money off the books, if you like. And I said then it would never work. It'll be more expensive and you'll be ripped off. And that's exactly what's happened. Mm. Interesting. Now, PFI was started under the Tories, then developed under Labour continued under the toys but now even this government has had to acknowledge that it has been a disaster mm. and it has i mm. in my constituency one of the first schools was a pfi because they forced it upon the governing body who didn't want it so i think some of those mistakes were definitely made but on the level of investment that was needed in our public services no i think that was needed 2010 we had the crash which was the banking crash caused by greed and speculation within the city and in other financial centres across the world. And then what happened, that was used as the excuse to cut back on public expenditure. In fact, it's been a disaster. And we've had 11 years of austerity, whereby, well, let's take the NHS. When we went into the COVID crisis, there were 100,000 vacancies in the NHS. Mm. So no wonder we were nearly swamped by COVID at that time. And also what I, you know, sometimes I get a bit angry. What was, what's angered me about all that is that some of the lowest pay was in the NHS and in social care. And these are the people that should be properly valued, respected and properly paid. And I'm hoping that's going to be addressed now. Thanks, John. If, if we can um, move on to um, your relationship with Jeremy Corbyn, where, where did that begin, John? Where, where did you start building and forming uh, strong connections with Jeremy? I can't remember the exact point, but what's happened way, way back in the late 70s, uh, um, I'm meeting Jeremy on a number of occasions on different campaigns 
often on demonstrations or picket lines or public meetings. And then in 1981, I was elected onto the Greater London Council and I became deputy leader to Ken Livingston. Jeremy was a union activist at the time, um, an organiser, and then eventually in, uh, went, went into Parliament. So we'd linked up as basically London campaigners, London trade union campaigners and community activists. And then when I was on the GLC, um, working with him on um, London-wide campaigns around housing and public transport. And actually, yeah, the environmental issues were coming up then as well. So I met him basically as a, yeah, as a, as a activist and campaigner. Okay. And I can only speak honestly, when, when Jeremy took over the leadership of the party with yourself, I sensed a real movement was something was something potentially big was, was building and it was a narrow defeat, wasn't it? At the, the first general election, if I recall, and I thought, okay, well, this is, this is going to be very interesting and we're going to see where this goes. Mm -hmm. When it got to the next election, it all seemed to fall apart somewhat. I, I don't know if that's a fair assessment, John. No, but... it, is. it is. What happened was, is that we, Jeremy gets elected in 2015. I'm his campaign manager. Um, when Jeremy ran for the leadership, first of all, um, it, to get onto the ballot paper to stand for uh, in the leadership election, you have to have a certain number of MPs nominate you. Um, and on two occasions, I'd stood for the leadership uh, when, when um, Tony Blair and then on to Gordon Brown. And on both occasions, I was so popular, I couldn't even get on the ballot paper. That's how bad it was. So when, when Jeremy ran, <laughs> I had to go around all these Labour MPs begging them to nominate him. And, and we got him on the, to everyone's surprise, we got him on the ballot paper. Funnily enough, we got him on the ballot paper 10 seconds before the close of nominations. It was that close. He gets on the ballot paper. No one expected him to win. I was working on the basis that if I could get um, about 25% of the Labour Party members voting for him, it would show the left had a sizable vote within the party. And we might be able to persuade whoever was leader to nominate some of the left into positions. Um, so, but then what happened was we'd had six years of austerity um, and people had had enough and they wanted something different rather than just the same old, same old in terms of everyone agreeing another round of cuts in our public services or wage restraint and issues like that. So Jeremy, when we launched the campaign, it was like a breath of fresh air. And then halfway through the leadership campaign, we suddenly woke up to the fact that Jeremy could win. And so then we had to put together a shadow cabinet fairly quickly. Um, and Jeremy gets elected on an overwhelming result um, to everyone's surprise. Um, a lot of our campaign team had, had um, put money on a bit. It was 200 to one at the beginning. Some of the youngsters had put a couple of quid on a bet. And at the end of it, they had enough to go on a, br a brilliant holiday. <laughs> I never put a bet on, I was the only one who didn't, I think. Anyway, we, he gets elected leader. And we have, by that time, we've recruited into the party a huge membership, nearly half a million members, the biggest political party in Western Europe. 
and there was a lot of enthusiasm and campaigning. The Parliamentary Labour Party, <clears throat> um, which most of them weren't happy that Joseph, Jeremy had won. So we literally every sort of couple of months, there'd be an attempted coup to get rid of him, which all added to the enjoyment and excitement of the occasion. We survived all that. And then we went into the 2017 election. Theresa May called it early. She said she wouldn't, but she did. Uh, and we just ran a straightforward anti-austerity campaign. Now, we were going to end austerity. We put together a detailed manifesto. And for the first time in the history of political parties in this country, I costed the manifesto. So we had the manifesto, we had the costings, and it proved to be popular. It proved to be incredibly popular. And we came very close to being the largest party, if not an overall majority. Um, we subsequently discovered there was allegations about some of our own party bureaucracy working against this, but we'd picked up such support, we were on quite a roll. Then what happened after 2017, two things really. One self-criticism is that we never maintained a clear narrative of what we were about. We had lots of policies, but no narrative welding them together about the sort of society we needed. But also then Brexit took over. It was just all Brexit. You couldn't have a conversation about anything um, on politically without Brexit intervening. So, and the, the issue for us is the strange thing in the Labour Party was that our membership, all the polling that we did, our membership and Labour supporters largely were about 70% in favour of Remain. Whereas in a lot of constituencies, quite a lot of a sizable vote, Labour vote, was in favour of Brexit. So we had this impossible position where we're having to try and hold together people who were Remainers, but at the same time trying to maintain our support amongst people who supported Brexit. And it proved to be impossible. And you couldn't beat a simple message like get, get the Brexit done. You couldn't beat that. for You couldn't convince people who are in favour of Brexit to support you against that straightforward line. So we got, there was a horns of a dilemma really. So that's how in 2019, it was all Brexit. Even when we want to talk about things like the NHS, it's, people are still turning around. So we'll, yeah, we'll have more money for the NHS if we Brexit, if we leave the Europe. Everything we raised was always done through the prism of Brexit. Mm. So we got hammered in December 19, purely and simply on that. I still think, though, we could have done a bit better if we'd have had a clear enough narrative, but we never developed that. And I think that's a lesson for the future, anyone else. But yeah, it was a Brexit election and the horns of the dilemma, I'm afraid, we, we collapsed yeah. on. So where, do, where does that leave the Labour Party, John? I mean, I, I just, you know, I've lived in Burnley all my life and I never, I genuinely never, ever thought I would see anything other than a Labour MP. And we had... Uh, a liberal but i never dreamt that it would be a conservative town it, what is the future for the labor party does does keir Starmer have the support of the left or not well, a number of factors one first of all uh, demographic change does take place over time there's there is such a thing in the there's been such things in the past even in the 20s and 30s of working class tories you've got to look at some of the areas that were have not always been consistently Labour, you know, and that people have got to, people seem to forget the history of this country at times. There has been a working class Tory base in the past and that happens. Often it happens um, when there's sentiments um, appealing to sort of either empire or nationalism, that sort of thing. And that's what occurred on Brexit to a large extent. But 
I think at the moment, the way the situation is, is that first of all, um, in future elections, the Brexit issue will still be there, but I think it will have largely gone. The decision has been made, we're out of the European Union, and now we have to live with that. So I think that's no longer a factor. So therefore, the debate eventually will return to the, the bread and butter issues of politics about quality of life, decent housing, education, health, all of those matters. And also this issue of concept of sense of fairness as well. I think that if we get back onto that agenda, that's largely Labour's agenda that I think they should they could profit from in the, the longer term. In the short term, I think Labour's having some difficulties because two things really, uh, just like Brexit, COVID has dominated all this, this last year. Um, I'm incredibly critical of the way um, Boris Johnson handled the COVID crisis, particularly at the beginning. But nevertheless, when you're in a crisis like that, the country comes together and largely supports the, uh, the government in place because it's a national crisis and people rally together in that way. I think as we come out of COVID, just like after Brexit, real politics will settle down. I think we'll eventually uh, have that discussion and people will get a fair hearing on all the other issues. And that's where I think the potential for Labour lies. With regard to Keir Starmer, I've, I've largely, since I stood down as Shadow Chancellor, I've tried to be as supportive as I possibly can. And I think that's the right thing to do. I said to Keir from the very beginning, when I stand down, it won't be like when Jeremy took over where the right wing of the party were attacking him continuously on a daily basis in the media. I said to Keir, I'd, do, I'd offer all the support I possibly could but I'd be honest as well about where I think we needed to go. And I think at the moment, um, I think where we need to go now is actually, I think we need to be showing some passion about the future of the country that we want. I think we need a clearer vision about that more equal and more democratic and fairer society. And also we need to be calling out with a bit more passion, the failings of our existing government, but also the inherent failings of our economic and political system. So what I want to see from Keir now is that vision and that passion. And in many ways, this, people may agree with this or not, we don't control the mainstream media. The main, our mainstream media in this country is largely controlled by a small group of oligarchs whose wealth and power we're trying to redistribute. So naturally they'll defend that wealth and power. So it's difficult to get a, a fair hearing in a lot of the mainstream media. So what we have to do is take advantage of the benefit that we have of our mass membership and engage and use every other form of communication that we possibly can to get our ideas across, both a critique of existing society, but also the vision of that future society that we want to create. Mm. That's why I do all these Zoom meetings and that's why it's almost like reinventing word of mouth as a form of political communication again, as against reading some of the mainstream media or listening to it. The other thing as well, social media is a thing that we can use effectively. In the 2017 general election, um, we, we had such a large bunch of young creative people. Social media was really effective for us. By 2019, the Tories had caught up and invested a large amount of money on social media. And what we need to do now is be that much more creative in its use. I think there's real potential there, but 
We need a bit of passion in our politics now, I think. I, I think so. I was talking to Grace Blakely on the Godcast, uh, John, and we were talking about Boris, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't trying to get her to compliment him by any means, but she said he's, you know, because I think he's a bit of the old Teflon Tony thing going on, not much is sticking to him at the moment, and she's kind of said, well, it's because he's kind of that, he's got that kind of happy-go-lucky kind of thing, you know, he, he maybe people might like to go and have a pint with him, but uh, it seems to me that politics is, is a bit of a personality contest at the moment rather than a, a political contest. That, does that frustrate you in any way? What I find frustrating to a certain extent is not, I've dealt with Boris over the years, he's my, in constituencies, he's the next door constituency to me. Um, I, I th what I find frustrating is just what an easy ride he gets in the media really easy ride all the time. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the last week or so, every political party leader has been interviewed on the Today programme, and they felt that's their responsibility to be there. He's refused to go on. He's just refused to go on. And the BBC lets him get away with it. I blank him completely. If you're not willing to come on and be properly interviewed, we won't bother turning up at your stunts. It's that sort of thing. I think he gets an easy ride. Interesting enough, though, politicians who rely upon that sort of easy ride and the likable roguish element, eventually people get frustrated with that. So here's a prediction. I actually think British people and people all over the globe just want someone who's honest and decent, and they want someone who actually has a care about other people rather than just themselves. Mm. I think Boris will run out of road and people's patience will only last so long with him on this sort of likable rogue image sort of thing and on that basis just as just as um you know like a firework he might have flown quite high i think he might crash to land so relatively soon on all of this uh, I, think wrong, I get that impression i think that I th i'd be surprised if he stands at the next election but but and i think i think um your counterpart the the chancellor might might take on the mantle and, and maybe bring some some seriousness, if anything, to politics. Uh, they all just seem a bit, a, a bit aloof with Boris. John, it's been, it's been absolutely great well, talking think, to you. Think, no, just let me finish on this because you mentioned Rishi Sunak. Um, the, the obvious replacement to Boris, uh, who actually might give up anyway because he wants to earn more money elsewhere. Um, but I think you'll find over the coming period, uh, Rishi's image might not be the same as it is now. <laughs> bearing in mind what's been happening over some of these contracts and other matters but we'll see how it rolls out anyway it'll be fascinating to watch i'm trying to i'm trying to um fall into the role of elder statesman now enjoying myself warming my hands by the fire <laughs> but do you know what john do you know what i've really enjoyed about talking to you is your passion is is undiminished isn't it you are still the fire is very much burning in you. And whether people agree with you politically or not, I think what you said about um, what we need is a real passion for politics and, and social reform and education and the NHS, because if we don't have that, we're, we really are in a bit of a pickle, aren't we? Exactly. As long as, there's a, as long as there's a homeless person out there, as long as there's a child who has not been properly fed, as long as there's a threat to our environment that could wipe out the planet for the next generation. We've got to be passionate. We've got to be. Mm. I think uh, many people will echo those sentiments. John, 
I, I've really, really enjoyed this and it's been a, a privilege to meet you and to talk to you. And um, thanks for joining me on the Godcast. You know where we're at, we're up in Burnley. I know it's a place you know. Um, and we send our, our best wishes to you down the M1, M6, whichever is the quickest. And uh, and thanks for coming on the Godcast, John. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure, Alex. All the best. God bless. Yeah.